question before we start out is, can we rejoice and be content? Because this is a message about contentment as well. So looking at the first couple verses here, because Pastor Chris really took care of verse 1 for us last week, since it really goes with the end of 3. So we're really picking up with verse 2 and 3 to start. Paul says, I implore Iodia and I implore Sintuche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And so here's my first opening question. Can you imagine having your name forever remembered in scripture, but kind of in a derogatory way? If you think about it. Paul said, I implore Iodia and I implore Santuche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I'm sorry, I have to pronounce it the way it is in Greek because I can't say it the way most people say it. Her name's not Suntuchi. I know I hear a lot of people say that. Uh, apparently, she might have been so touchy because obviously something's going on between her and her friend Iodia. Paul also urges a true companion, someone unnamed. To help these women who labored with him in the gospel. Now, what I think is awesome is that the two women who are obviously in some kind of argument, and we'll talk about it in a second, are those who are named specifically. And then there is an unnamed true companion. Who is the true companion? You ready for the real deep theological answer? I don't know. John MacArthur didn't know. Charles Ryrie didn't know. Those are, my, those are my two go-to PhDs. If they don't know, who else knows? I know the Holy Spirit knows. And I'm sure whoever it was written to 2,000 years ago probably knew. But again, how would you like to have your name immortalized in Holy Scripture for generations to read, but kind of in a derogatory way? The twice-repeated phrase, I implore, I implore, is important. Because Paul could have in Greek just basically said, I implore Iodia and Sintuche. He could have said that, but he doesn't do it. In the Greek, it's, it's repeated, which I'm going to tell you now, in Greek structure is odd to repeat that phrase. The Greeks didn't mince word when they wrote. They kind of wrote things as concisely as they could. So when we see this in our text in English, just so you know, it is the same in the Greek text. I implore, I implore. Shows Paul to be pleading, begging, and or even in an encouraging mode as he addressed the issues of these divisive women. And you know what the truth matters? We don't even know what they were fighting about. Want to know why? Because that's not the most important thing. The important thing is that they were unreconciled and there was some kind of fighting going on. That's what's important. You see, the apostles mention of such a seemingly common matter after the lofty doctrinal text of chapters 2 and 3 may surprise us. However, the apostle understood that discord and divisiveness pose an equally crippling threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this world will try and tear us apart. I have to beg you in Christ to be of one mind. Have we not seen that flow already? Have we not seen that theme 
as, as we've searched out Philippians, all right, we as the body of Christ must support each other. And I didn't say support each other in falsehood or in sin or in bad behavior or anything like that. But we need to be of one mind in Christ. And if Christ indwells us, then we should have the mind of Christ. Galatians 6, 1 through 3, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So how do we do it? How do we correct in the church in, a, in the right motivations of the heart and in the correct way? Well, I can tell you the wrong way to do it. The wrong way to do it is the way I used to do it, which is what I used to call the Jay Falzerano double shotgun to the face. Yeah, I, I had a minor arrogant problem when I was younger. You know, I had no problem in youth group being the sin sniffer. Y'all know sin sniffers, right? You're in sin. Em, I see it on your face. You're, you're in sin. If you just confess it, you'd feel better, you know? And then someone would say something like stupid, like, my grandma said I can't eat the candy out of the dish that's on the apothecary table. And I'd be like, sinner! How dare you just insolently refuse to obey your grandma. Your grandma loves you. Like, what's your problem, loser? No, seriously, this would be funny if this was just for, like, I made this up for application's sake. Because that's how I used to deal with people. My peers, even. It didn't get better, either, when I was, like, moved on and matured a little and, you know, became a youth leader. It, it didn't get much better until I got a couple stern rebukes and, uh, and actually learned how to read scripture and got some training. So that was a really good thing for me. That doesn't work. The double barrel shotgun to the face doesn't work. Sometimes you feel like somebody needs it, but it doesn't work. Want to know what else doesn't work? Oh, what's wrong, soft cup? What's wrong, soft cupcake? Come here. Come here. Chris, come cry on my shoulder. Come, come here. I'll rub your back. I'll pat it too. I'll pat your back. Can I get you a Perrier? What do you want? All right? Like two methods of fully tripped out, nonsensical, non-biblical correction going on in the church. Some of it is like all truth, right? No love. I call that the double barrel shotgun to the face. Gaga boom. Yeah, you got the truth. But there was no love. And then there's the other one. There's all love and no truth. And you're keeping someone right where they're at. I hate to tell you, the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin in our life so that we stop. That's what it's there for. And if God does that, it's because he loves you and he treats you like his own. That's what it says in Hebrews. People need to stop moping around in the church today. Like, oh, I feel so convicted over my sin. Good. If you're in sin, you should. You sit there and feel good about it. You shouldn't feel good about it. You should feel lousy about it. Jesus was thinking, spat upon, mocked, beaten with an inch of his life, hung on a cross for our sin. All right? Enough. That's enough. Yes, we should feel convicted about our sin. 
but there should be the mixing and melding of truth and love, which Paul said, we must speak the truth and love. In Greek, it's one word, it's truthing and love. And they didn't, they didn't translate it that way because that doesn't make sense in English. It, Greek is funny, it makes sense in Greek. If you go up to someone and you give them all the truth and no love, you're brutal. I call that brutality, conviction, correction. It's brutality. All truth, no love is brutality. But watch, all love and no truth is hypocrisy. You've made someone comfortable, they stay in their sin, and they mope around, and they just keep doing the same crap over and over and over again. And they live the shame spiral of sin. And that's what sin is meant to do to you, just like Jesus said in John 8. Do you not know he who sins is a slave to sin? That's the funky thing about sin. It's got this disgusting, pleasurable, wanton thing that our flesh is drawn to. And then you get into it. And because you're a child of God, you're like disgusted with your own actions and what you've done. And, and how could I do this? And then all of a sudden you're allured back to sin again. It, it's the shame spiral. It just happens over and over and over again. It says, doesn't it say it? It says it in the Proverbs. Stolen water is sweet. Yeah, it is. But you're still stealing someone else's water. And in a society where you needed to dig a 50 to 150 foot hole to find water, water's valuable. Stolen water is sweet. But it's nonetheless stolen water. So what do we do? We need to encourage and convict and rebuke and train and we speak the truth of a matter in a loving and understanding way. That's what we need to do. That's what Paul says. Because if we do it the wrong way, we ourselves are thinking that we're really something when Paul warns us that kind of spirit is arrogant. You're thinking you're something, and when you do that, you immediately make yourself, in God's eyes, a nothing. All right? I told you my good friend John Henry Corcoran has the most beautiful you know, Irish Proverbs. And my favorite one is, if you want to be big in God's eyes, learn to become little in your own. It's really true. First Thessalonians 5, 14 through 22 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays Anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Yes, my friends. Even if you can sit back and say, well, what I really did from a certain standpoint wasn't technically sin. Did it look like sin? I get this for all the guys who always, without fail, sleep over their girlfriend's house and swear that they always sleep on the couch. No doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, this would be the problem with that. When you walk out at 9 o'clock in the morning and go start your car, everyone in the condominium association or wherever it is, the gated community, 
whatever community, the apartment complex. It just basically looks like you were a booty call. Like it or not, that's what it looks like. It's what it looks like. We are called to even abstain from every form of evil. And one of the greatest forms of evil in the church is people being absolutely bitter and angry and completely unrepentant about it with brothers and sisters who they show up week in and week out and put on what I like to call the stupid Sunday morning plastic Christian smile and go, oh, good morning, brother, how are you? Oh, I'm good, how are you? How was your week? Oh, good, oh, oh, love you in Christ. And you walk around, you're like, hate that guy, I wish he would drop dead, I wish someone would drop an anvil or a piano on him. Oh, what, too real for you? Oh, you've never seen that in the church before? Open your eyes, you'll see it. We need to drop all that stuff. Jesus again said, they will know you are my disciples, the love you have one for another. For another, guys. It's a reiteration of Philippians 2.14, which I had the pleasure of teaching on. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. What he had earlier hinted at, now Paul addresses absolutely directly. And he doesn't hold back names, now does he? Little is known about Iodi and Suntuche, but several facts about the situation are blatantly evident. First, they were church members, not troublemakers from outside the congregation. This is a church epistle. It's written to the Philippian believers. It's written to the church. Secondly, the dispute was evidently not over a doctrinal issue. How do we know? Oh, we know simply because we know who wrote the letter. This is Paul. This is real man, no nonsense, Paul. Paul, the man's man. If it had been a sinful or doctrinal issue, I assure you, as there's a God in heaven, Paul would have resolved it very quickly by siding with the one who was correct and rebuking the one who was in error. How do we know? We've already seen him do it in other parts of the New Testament. All right? Which is interesting, because then the mind really starts to wander, doesn't it? What in the heck were these two ladies beefing about what was going on lastly i think is a really important one. they were prominent women in the church well respected by the entire philippian congregation for they along with whoever paul's beloved companion is and clement had served with him in ministry these are prominent women okay i love people who downgrade women's importance in biblical times i just can't stand it that really rubs me the wrong way. Now, yeah, I'm going to come right out and let you know flat out, I'm not egalitarian. So, ladies, you already know Dr. J's stance. I don't think you can be elders and pastors. You want to beef about it later? We can, we can talk. We can go to the scriptures, you know. We'll go right to 1 Timothy 2, though, followed by 1 Timothy 3. However, I hold stances that a lot of other pastors would never, ever take. I think women can be deacons. Okay? That's actually an office in the church. It's a position of serving. I think that it's amazing when you study the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had a crew of women who supported him in ministry with, with money and clothing. All right? Luke is like the Gospel specifically for women, so you can see that there's absolutely 
and importance on women in New Testament times. These women served. They served and ministered. They were well known. I'm sure they were a little more than shocked when this letter was read, more than likely on a Sunday morning by the pastor of the Philippian church. One thing is exceedingly abundantly clear. Paul knew these women well. How well? By name, intimately, as ones who he had served with. And if anyone here has ever been on a missions trip or any kind of outreach or anywhere you got to dig your heels into the sand and feel the opposition of Satan and this world, you will know that something amazing happens by doing ministry with people. It unites and knits your hearts together like nothing else. Like nothing else. So I'll tell you right now, before we get real judgy here, Paul had every single right to speak into this situation. I want to show you something real quick, how the Bible actually really is not just inerrant messages from God, how the Bible is internally, absolutely, historically correct. Here is a portion of Acts chapter 16, 11 through 14. Dr. Luke informs us, from Troas, we put out the sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there seven days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Isn't it awesome that we know empirically now from a book that is largely historical, the book of Acts, that when Paul went to Philippi, which just so you know, that is the letter where he wrote to the Philippians, that's Philippi, the city. When he went to find a place of prayer, they went outside the city gates. They went down to the river, and there were a bunch of women there who were worshipers. They were worshipers of God, which is a funny title in Greek. It, it means that they had an understanding that there was an almighty God, but more than likely were not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a belief in an almighty trans transcendent God. All right? Well, what they needed is they needed to hear the gospel. They needed to hear the good message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul did that. And we know that this is how Lydia who I'm going to tell you right now was a rich woman because she sold something very hard to come by in the ancient world, the, the dye that was purple. You got it by crushing a mollusk that they actually had. It was a little tiny snail. They had that in Thyatira. Purple was a royal color. Commoners weren't even allowed to wear it in certain parts of the Middle Eastern world, as in other parts of Asia as well in ancient times. It was a royal color. But I just have to tell you, I've got this sneaky suspicion that Iodia and Sintuche were probably among the prominent women of that city who were down, probably praying by the river. So what's Paul's solution here? What is his solution to people fighting the inquarreling going on in the church? His solution to quarreling friends was simple and direct. And I love that. I love how simple it is. 
He commanded the two guilty parties to live in harmony in the Lord. You guys get that? Live in harmony in the Lord. What is the only reason that we, as people of all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, maybe we come from different cultures, some of us come from different parts of the world, and out of the many, we have become one. Isn't it awesome that the only reason that we can be in one accord is because we have one Lord. We can be in harmony because we're in Christ. And I'll tell you, there is a time when conflict is absolutely and totally acceptable, namely when the truth is at stake. And we see that, don't we? Paul even confronted Peter when he was in error. We find in Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, that's the Hebrew word for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You see, Peter was eating and breaking bread and having deep intimate fellowship with the Gentile believers there. And then all of a sudden, prominent leaders from James, that's the Jerusalem church, came. And all of a sudden, Peter broke away, starts eating kosher again, and he's not hanging out, and he's not fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And Paul, who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, quite literally, a Jew of Jews, rebukes Peter. And I would say it was probably pretty firmly because it was hypocrisy. What are you going to do? You're going to run back to the very thing that Christ has come to free people from? The heavy taxing yoke of law? Brothers and sisters, we don't live by law. The law was nothing more than a tutor. It's in the same book. It's in Galatians. It was a schoolmaster that kept the Jewish people until Mashiach, the Christ, was revealed. Look, when the master is revealed, no one needs a tutor any longer. We live by an amazing thing called grace. That's what we live by. And since Christ has forgiven us and poured out richly grace upon us, then we must do the absolute same thing. We must live by grace. Why could Paul do this? Well, it's in the rest of verse 3. I urge you also, true companion. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul makes a mention of a true companion. In the Greek, it means fellow yokeman. And I wish that some of the translations would just have the nerve to do that. Because if you know anything about yoking animals, it's putting two like-minded and like-sized animals together that they would work as one. The whole word picture here is of two oxen pulling the same plow. I personally will go out on a limb and tell you, I believe that the true companion was more than likely he who was pastoring Philippi. It's an opinion. When I give you an opinion, I'll tell you flat out. Paul also speaks of Clement, though, who himself is an early church father who actually wrote a letter to the Philippians a few decades later. And guess what? When Clement writes again, there's stress, strife, and division. 
in the Philippian church. But the very most important thing is the very last thing. Not that they are true companions. Not the fact about the laboring in the gospel. That's all awesome stuff. That's all fantastic. What is the very last thing? It's that Paul mentions these are the people whose names are in the book of life. Jesus said the exact same thing when the disciples came back. They came back and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, don't glory in that. Glory that your names are written in the book of life. That's what we glorify in. Do you know that Christ has inscribed your name in the Lamb's book of life? Well, that's awesome. Because there's a promise in Revelation that he'll never blot it out once it's in. Brothers and sisters, I beg you, please hear me. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, poured out his blood on Calvary's mount to procure our full salvation. We must not spit in his face through strife, fighting, and division. We mustn't. We mustn't. I beg you with all that I am in Christ, if you are harboring bitterness with anyone in your life, if you are especially harboring bitterness or anger or unforgiveness with someone in the body of Christ, I beg you in Christ, I, I, I urge you, I implore you, I beseech you, get it right. Go and seek forgiveness. Offer it if you've been wronged. We mustn't be the ones who rend the precious body of Christ with stupid fighting. We didn't even know what they were fighting about. But it was enough that there was division amongst two members of the church that Paul has to call them out by name. Let's move on to verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be named known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought that joy, which is a massive theme in this book, is often the cure. Joy. I didn't say happiness, because happiness isn't joy. And that's the whole thing. People don't get that. Happiness is a transient emotion. You're nice to me. You say hi. I am happy. At the end of the night, I hold out my hand. I give you a big wave. I blow a kiss and say I love you. And you go, oh, man, oh, now I'm crestfallen. You see, now I'm sad. Sad emoji. You see, happy and sad are transient emotions. They're based on circumstance. I'm super happy when I get a new car. What is it? It's awesome, right? It smells nice. It looks nice. I pick up Benny Fernandez. We go get tacos, and he barfs all over the dashboard on the way to church. I'm not just sad. Now I'm mad. Or as my wife says, smad, which is sad mad because you're both. But those things are all transient. Vinny's never thrown up in my car, by the way. 
And if he did, it would ruin our friendship. Because I can get over all things except for vomit. I just, it's just the only thing. I just, I just can't take vomit. You know, you could bleed all over me. Just don't puke on me. Joy is a non-transient emotion. It is not based on your circumstance. This is why the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's not false manufactured joy that you joy yourself up, right? The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy, the joy, the joy of the Lord. And you start singing like songs that you sang at youth camp from 10 years ago. Right? I got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. That's a false sense of joy. That's not even what that verse means in Hebrew. It's not even close. It's the fact that God loves you with an unconditional everlasting love. And he will always love you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's the joy God has in you. Literally is what that means. And we just get that wrong. We need to rejoice in the Lord always. That means despite the circumstance from which it is written, joy is a major theme all over the entire letter, 11 times in this letter, making it a major theme. Charles Spurgeon once said, I am glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. I am unusually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. But as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Therefore, joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. I'd love to drop this mic right now, but it's expensive. Man, that's, that was written hundreds of years ago. It could have fittingly be written yesterday. Spurgeon's spot on. When your joy is in Christ, you usually won't offend too many people as you walk in joy. And people's backbiting nasty little comments will roll off your back the way water rolls off a duck's back. You just won't wear it. Does Paul finish there? No. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's joy was not based upon the glass is always half full optimism or some kind of goofy, positive mental thinking, right? No, it's that Paul knew who his God was. That our great God is always sovereignly in control. Let your gentleness be known. How should the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ be characterized? As those who are gentle in spirit. We get this word and we kind of mess it up. We don't always understand exactly what that means. We are told that Jesus Christ was the meekest man. I know people go, meek? Oh, so he was weak. Nah, that's not what it means at all. Meek means strength under control. Gentleness has a similar connotation in the Greek. They're very related words. No, you can still be gentle and not be perceived as a weakling. Galatians 5, 19 through 24 say, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, 
dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, there is the crux of the argument. I know lots and lots of Christians who have not even come close to crucifying their own flesh. Jesus was ever so simple when he told people what real discipleship looked like. Which is why when people say they want to get in a discipleship relationship with me, I'm like, I'm not entirely sure you really want to know what that looks like. Unless you like the biblical answer. You should deny yourself. Okay? Pick up your cross and follow Christ daily. That's a threefold recipe for absolute success in the Christian life. Really? Deny the I? We live in a world that says love yourself all the more. And you know what? Who cares about anyone else as long as you get yours? Polar opposite to what Christ said. Take up your cross. Do you realize that was an implement of death in Jesus' day? We wear it as jewelry today, but no one did 2,000 years ago. Because that does, that, that's the most heinous death that Rome had for the worst criminal, criminals ever. You realize that a Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified? That's why Paul was beheaded, because he was a Roman citizen and a Jew. It was the worst, most cruel form of execution out there. And what is Jesus saying? Self-mutilate thyself? No. Crucify your passions as if they were to be nailed to a cross. It's again, it's Christocentric. It's being completely focused on Jesus. As you walk with him day by day. Really simple in the Gospel of John. You're either abiding in Christ or you're not. It's one or the other. I know this is a super hard verse for many people to hear, but hear it, we must. We are instructed to be anxious for nothing. My goodness, we live in a world where anxiety and panic disorder is on the rise massively. And amongst the youngest people going. I think my daughter's generation may be the most anxiety-ridden people group I've ever seen. Gen Z. They're worried about everything. They worry about worry. They worry about not worrying enough. It's not to be, brothers and sisters. Christ doesn't want us worrying all the time. We have to hear this verse because the truth contained within it is germane, meaning absolutely crucial, to the abundant Christian life. Most Christians I know want a peace from God that comes from understanding. Don't we see it in the scriptures? Jesus is telling his disciples about the Father's glory. And then Philip blurts out, well, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. Ah, there it is. Give me it. Give me, give me the understanding. Show us. 
Jesus has to say, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We all want innately the kind of peace that comes from understanding. That's not what the, the text didn't say that at all. All right? Can't get that from the passage. Paul declares that as we release our anxiety and lean upon God in prayer, he will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. We don't need understanding. We don't need to know every single nitty-gritty detail, every which way God is working out, every single thing. And I, I, I try to tell people, do you realize if God downloaded 10% of his knowledge into your brain, your head would explode? I said 10%. It's probably a quarter of 1% would be too much for the average human being to take. And it's not that God's treating us like idiot dum-dums. That's not it at all. What he wants from us is he actually wants faith. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do we trust God? Isn't he worthy? Didn't he do enough? Didn't he go to the cross? Despising the shame, he still went to the cross. He's done more than enough. Forgiven us? Sent the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and dwell us and fill us? No, the truth of the matter is, I don't care how good you think you are, in this room, Almighty God treats every single one of us way better than we deserve to be treated. That's the honest to God truth of Scripture. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, to help us with our anxiety, in the New English translation, because I think they got it the best, said, and God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourself under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Strong in your faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kinds of suffering. Brothers and sisters, you want to unite yourself to the rest of the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about people in New Jersey. I'm not talking about people in the tri-state area. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about brothers and sisters throughout the world, just like the text says. I beg you, pray for other Christians around the globe. We think we're persecuted in America because they make us put a mask on before we go into ShopRite. I've got to tell you, I don't like them either. But if you think you're persecuted by that, you haven't seen it. Ask Egyptian Christians how persecuted they are. Um, radical Muslims busted up church service and pulled our pastor out, and he hasn't been seen in three months. And they told us if we meet again, they're going to throw a bomb through the window next to him. How about our brothers and sisters in North Korea who, when caught evangelizing, are put in four-by-four four boxes and treated like monkeys in a cage? You think we're so persecuted. The truth of the matter is there are people who are way more persecuted than us. I, I pray we're all in one accord praying for people across the globe who are absolutely 100% in Christ Jesus, our brothers and sisters, and we will, we will. Spend eternity with them. We will be with them. Let's be able to look them dead in the face and say with all sincerity, I was praying for you. 
only I hope to hear them say, and we felt those prayers. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. This is where Paul really wraps this whole argument up. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Here is Paul's outline for proper Christian fellowship. I got to tell you guys, it always humbles me and even somewhat terrifies me when I remember that God knows all of my thoughts. Hebrews 4.13 reminds all of us. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I think it's amazing that King David, after his atrocious sin with Bathsheba, writes this in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is the lesson here? We could spend a half hour and go for every one of those words. What is good, what is noble, what is lovely, but we're not going to do that. Brothers and sisters, I beg you, in the digital age, listen hard for but two seconds. It all starts in my and your thought life. The mind. The battlefield of the mind is where most sins start and reach full conception. It is the mind. Now you don't know, but you have a little gatekeeper up there by God's design. You gotta learn how to strengthen him. Romans 12, one through three said, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's nothing in the world that's going to wash your mind like the word of God. The more you get into the word of God as you study it, as you meditate upon it, as you read it, the more God's word by his grace and power gets into you. And it is transformative like nothing. That's why Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. No, don't be conformed to it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Metanoia means changing your mind. You have the ability to change your mind. We're not alley cats. Do you know that? We're not driven by instinct. We're not. 
We're human beings. We have a volition. We have the ability to make choices, to choose the good or the evil, the power of contrary choice. We have that. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy it. Because it's not true. It's not true. You know, the truth of the matter is, if you're presenting yourself unto God, your body as a living, not a dying sacrifice. Jesus doesn't say, hey, slit your throat and throw yourself up on the altar of sacrifice. This isn't the Old Testament. Christ did that. He died. He was, a, he was truly a sacrifice that his blood was poured out. Jesus instead is saying, present yourself a living sacrifice. Living. And when you're living for Christ, I got to tell you, you're not living to gratify self. It's not that hard. It's just the truth. Meditate on these things. I know some people say Christians don't believe in meditation. Oh, yes, we do. I didn't say oh, I didn't say om on your navel on a mountaintop. That's a different kind of meditation that I, you know, I don't prescribe to that one. I'm just saying. Yeah, believe it or not, we Christians do believe in meditation. Again, not as some other world religions would do, but we do believe in meditation because it's literally spending time thinking about something. That is what meditation is. Well, take a Bible verse and bring it up all day long. Paul says in the phrase, meditate on these things. When he does this, he's introducing a very important thought. Spiritual stability is a direct result of how a person thinks. Yeah, you need to train your mind. You do. The imperative form in Greek of meditate doesn't make it a suggestion, brothers and sisters. It makes it a command. Proper thinking is not optional in the life of the Christian. Meditate means more than just entertaining a thought. It means to evaluate, to consider, and even to calculate, to think deeply upon. Meditate upon these things. Believers are to consider the qualities Paul lists in this verse and meditate on their implications. The verb form calls for habitual discipline of the mind to set all thoughts on these spiritual virtues. It's not a one and done thing, guys. Well, I thought on things noble and things good and all kinds of awesome things last week, dude. No. No. Habitually. Habitually meditate upon these things. And I want to skip it, but I don't want to skip it. This is what I call a Levitical look. This is an example that we have of what is called the ruminants. Now you're thinking, what in the heck is a ruminant? Why in the world are we talking about animal biology, you weirdo? Well, I just want to read the verse, and then I'll tell you why ruminants are so cool. Leviticus 11, verses 1 through 4. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the earth, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a split hoof. But you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. And I'll only focus on one aspect for this lesson. 
the ruminants were the animals that usually had more than a one-chambered stomach, like a cow that has four. But they have an organ in their stomach called a rumen that allows them to chew grass, swallow it. Now, don't get grossed out about this. And bring it back up for another chewing. I know you're like, where are you going, dude? This is what made them clean. They were, they were cud chewers. They chewed the grass. They swallowed it. They brought it back up. They regurgitated it. They chewed it. They swallowed it. They brought it back up again. In doing that, it actually produced the best manure that could be used as fertilizer. It also made them a clean animal to eat because grass-eating animals, when they actually eat the grass they were designed to eat, are very lean and healthy, good meat with just enough fat. But the truth of the matter is it's the rabbis who said the ruminators were to be eaten because they were clean, and in a like way, we are to be the ruminants as well. But what are we to do with God's word? We are to mentally digest it and chew it up and swallow it and bring it back up again and think upon it, and chew it, and swallow it, and bring it back up again, and think upon it, and meditate, and calculate, and swallow it, and chew it back up again, just like a Levitically clean animal who chews his own cud. You want to have a great practice? I'll tell you one right now, and it's not because it's something I read in a book. It's because another brother in Christ did this for me when I was 18, and I still do it. Get a three-by-five index card, cut it in half, and then cut it in half again. Now you have a tiny little card that'll fit right in your pocket. Write out a Bible verse, stick it in your wallet, and pull it out and read it 20 times in a day. And you will get into the habit of being a ruminant. You will take God's word and you will digest it. You will meditate upon it. It doesn't cover your quiet time, your devo life with Christ. It's something additional. It's extra nutrients. Because that's the other thing about the animals that chew their own cud. Do you know there's a lot of nutrient in grass? Way too much just to be chewed and swallowed once. You bring it back up again, and they chew it, and they swallow it, and they get more nutrition. They express more phytonutrients out of the grass. God's word is too awesome, too rich with wisdom, power, and knowledge to be merely digested once. It must be brought up again in the life of a believer in his or her mind and chewed upon and chewed upon and chewed upon. Because what we want formed in us, brothers and sisters, is the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul described one of the most amazing realities of salvation. Jesus Christ became for us wisdom from God. That means we, as followers of Christ, have renewed minds that can dive into the deep thoughts of Almighty God and never, ever reach the bottom. And God invites us. He says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Do you know that we have a God who isn't far away? He's intimate and personal. Come, let us reason. In summary, Paul exhorts the Philippian believers, if there is anything excellent and if there is anything worthy of praise, meditate on these things. The key to godly living is godly thinking, as Solomon wisely warned. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And that's true. Verses 10 through 17 said, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. 
Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Wherever and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Some have thought wrongly in the past that Paul is rebuking the Philippians for not supporting him, but nothing could be further from the truth. In this one sentence, it simply says they lacked opportunity unto now. They were the one church that did support him. And it's amazing. Paul did not beg God's people to help him in ministry work. He just placed the need simply before them and trusted God to meet it. And he had learned the lesson of true contentment. Changing circumstances did not affect the inner contentment he enjoyed. Paul had been well fed as well as very hungry. And also in plenty, he had also been in want. Paul said he could do everything including handling poverty and living in abundance through him who gave him strength. This was not an expression of his pride in his own abilities. Never think that but a declaration of the strength provided by Christ. Philippians 4.13 is probably the most misoften quoted and out of context in all of Holy Writ. While in seminary one day in California, we got a pop quiz, and no one was ready for it. And one of my fellow classmates, who's another Calvary Chapel pastor, so I have to leave that name right up there in the cloud, looked over and he said, dude, are you worried? And I went, no, it's a pop quiz. It's not going to fail me for the semester. He's like, I'm not worried, bro. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I went, that is the dumbest use of that verse ever. Do you read ever? Did you ever read the verse? Paul knew how to have everything. Paul knew how to have nothing. Full belly, no food in belly. Glorifying God, praising him, seeing fruitful churches started, shackled in chains, beaten with rods. Do you get it? Paul knew who he was in Christ. That is the secret to contentment if you don't know. He knew who he was in Christ. He also knew that his God provided everything he ever needed. He was never in need. He had everything he needed. And he has such praise for the Philippians here. Paul reminds the Philippians that they alone had supported him when he departed from Macedonia. Not that Paul begged for money from any church. You never see that. In fact, you see him never asking financial aid. All Paul wanted was the Philippians to be fruitful. That's all he wanted was fruit. That's it. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 says, Now I am ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have 
to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Writing to a church that really, really dissed Paul a lot and showed him a lot of contempt and disrespect. Does that sound like an apostle of greed? Does that sound like someone begging for ministry support? No. No, the opposite. It's the opposite. Let's close down for tonight. Philippians 4, 18 through 23. Paul said, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the seats, all the saints greet you. Be especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So a couple closing thoughts here. Here in verse 18, Paul again thanks the Philippian Christians for their amazing generosity. He is genuinely able to say thanks to their gifts. He has all that he needs and is even abounding. He's got enough. The gift they sent, it would appear from the text, was an above and beyond. Not enough to, to meet the need. It exceeded his need. It's Paul who writes, don't be compelled to give for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul tells them that God sees their faithfulness and he will reward it. Philippians 4.19, such a beautiful verse for us to commit to memory. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people want to point out and say that's a typo in the New King James. It should say needs. No, it shouldn't. It's singular for emphasis in Greek. All of your need is the encompassing thought of everything you need. Sometimes we think so westernly in, in the church today of America. Just about, just about material possessions and this and that. No, it's, it's everything that you need. Everything. Things going on in the spiritual realm that we are often so oblivious about that we should be so thankful about. For in Christ, we have all that we need for faith and practice. Everything. Dr. John MacArthur, in his New Testament commentary, says it best. The crucial lessons in contentment illustrated here in the life of Paul may be summarized in five words. Listen with your spiritual ears. Faith, humility, submission, dependence, unselfishness. Those virtues characterize all who have learned to be content. Amen?